1: Hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am a master of the laws of taxation law, as well as a master of the laws of intellectual property laws to complement my JD. Now, because of my training, my experience, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and wealth creation and wealth preservation and wealth transfer and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. I also practice its first cousins, that is to say debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and their offspring, taxation law. And I'm proud to say that as part of my overall practice, I sometimes have the opportunity to seek out and at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves the targets, and unfortunately more and more, the victims of some of the most permiss- pernicious forms of financial elder abuse that you could ever imagine. Now I'm coming to you again today as I continue my voluntary light lockdown, but I see the light at the end of the tunnel because although I, as I shared with you last time, I received my second dose of vaccine, um, my, my doctor suggested and urged me, and I'm sure you as well out there who've been vaccine, that you're not quite there yet until a couple of weeks after you get the second inoculation to make sure that uh, the uh, serum is working. So I'm coming to you again today uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to being able to go outside again. I'm kidding, of course I go outside. But I'm, I don't know that I'm going to go and hang out with a bunch of folks because I, my brain tends to get in the way of me doing foolish things. Um, but I look forward to spending at least part of this coming summer outside and mixing with people at least uh, at arm's length. <laughs> and I'm going to wear my nails. So, Again, I'm coming to you from my makeshift studios in my home in a great world-class city, that is to say the always beautiful city of Oakland, California, and I come to you to discuss uh, the financial and legal issues that are confronting individuals, families, and small business owners. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances, and hopefully just give you an overall outline of some of the key issues that will help you. Uh, because I'm really concerned, as I've shared with you, about individuals representing themselves in legal matters. I think it's like taking a butter knife to a gunfight. I heard an uh, even better saying about uh, the way that politicians are, are um, going, getting along now. Some people say that when Democrats get into fights with Republicans, uh, Democrats bring soup ladles to gunfights. <laughs> But, you know, it's kind of like when you're uh, out-womaned and out you really find yourself behind the eight ball when you represent yourself in the legal matter, especially when that's dealing with your finances, because you got to believe the other side is going to be represented by competent counsel. And that means that your ballot claims or defenses are likely going to be uh, dead on arrival and they'll see the promised land way before you do. So that's why I believe it's. Uh, Important for someone like me to take the time to talk to our overall communities about this intersection of the law and finances for individuals, families, and small businesses. So again, I share with you the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to talk about the law as it intersects with your money. And until we get fully employed again, unfortunately, a lot of people, it's the lack thereof, and I really want to talk about your finances and what you need to consider to be your and or your families and or your business, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as I understand these concepts in a non-threatening educational form. So today I want to follow up on the discussion we began last week about the implementation of the federal program that's supposed to allocate $4 billion, that's billion with a B, of the American Rescue Plan Act for debt relief for some of the estimated 13,000 or so Black and other minority farmers in the form of a loan forgiveness program where the funds are supposed to start being distributed in June of this year, next month, as part of the federal stimulus package that is aimed to help disadvantaged farmers who were basically or have continuously been screwed by banks with the help of our very own government and specifically the United States Department of Agriculture. And this has been going on for well over 100 years. Civil rights activists have said that this debt relief program represents a huge step towards righting a wrong after a century of mistreatment of farmers of color by our government and others. Unfortunately, as can be expected, some white farmers uh, and lawmakers and bankers are calling this reverse discrimination. And some banks are warning that unless they get their full revenue stream that they contracted for, even if they get the loan principal and the interest paid, that's not enough. So there's going to be all kinds of litigation about this going forward, but you know, we're kind of used to that. Now, the American Rescue Plan includes two provisions to provide relief to Black, Indigenous, and other farmers of color. Now, the first is to provide this $4 billion that I've discussed, debt relief, for certain uh, loans that have been guaranteed or in some way involved with in the United States Department of Agriculture. And there's also an additional little over $1 billion, again with a B, that's allocated by the Secretary of Agriculture for training and technical assistance and other assistance to Black and farm other farmers of color, as well as community-based organizations that support these uh, organizations such as 1890 and 1994 land grants and other minority serving institutions such as historically black colleges and universities and other nonprofits. Now this program is designed for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers as defined by the Food, Agriculture, Conservation and Trade Act of 1990. while uh, in some way involving the Farm Service Agency and debts or loans made to these farmers via that agency. Now, the baseline is, and the reason why this is necessary, uh, Congress has found that these farmers or ranchers have been subjected to racial or ethnic prejudice because of their identity, as members of groups without regard of who they are as individuals. Now, according to our current agriculture secretary, Tom Vilsack, between 11,000 and 13,000 Black American Native, uh, American Native, uh, Hispanic, Alaskan Native, Asian American, and or Pacific Islander farmers will benefit from these programs. And um, what's gonna happen is their existing loans on effect on the books on January 1, uh, 2021 will be paid off by the United States Treasury. And these eligible farmers will also receive an additional up to 20% of the loan as a cash payment sent directly to them to cover the tax burden that comes when you have a cancellation of a debt outside of bankruptcy. Basically, it's a taxable event. So the government is going to front that taxable payment as well. Now, again, according to Secretary Vilsack, these people will get a letter uh, that advises them of the debt, how much they think is owed and uh, you'll spell out the debt, the principal and the interest and whatever charges, there might be some ancillary charges and the farmer or rancher will have an opportunity to cur sign off on the debt and if they sign off on it, the department will pay the loan directly to the lending institution or whoever owns the debt and send the check for the $20,000 to fill taxes directly to the farmer or rancher. I heard from some of you wanted to know why American Indians, that's the terminology that they use, I use the terminology Native American or Indigenous people, Hispanic, Alaskan Natives, Asian Americans or Pacific Islander farmers, why are they also included? Well, inquiring minds want to know why this program isn't just for black folks. So, you know, when I come back, I'm going to tell you why the USDA's Debt Forgiveness Program for Farmers of Color must serve all farmers of color. But before this, I'm going to take a short break, and I'll see you on the other side.
0: Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead.
1: Welcome back to Selwyn's Law. As we continue our discussion of today's topic, the USDA's Debt Forgiveness Program for Farmers of Color. You know, when I talk to folks who don't know our complete history, that is to say the history of our country and the world, the way I do, I used to get upset with them because history of the world and our country is out there, it's documented, and it's out there for all to seek out and to uncover. And when they didn't know our history, uh, it to me seemed to be their fault. But you know, as I've matured, I've come to the realization that Americans have intentionally been dumbed down. Uh, by our woefully inadequate educational system coupled with the hierarchical economic caste system that thrives on keeping communities all communities but especially communities of color separated ignorant about each other uh, all the while at the same time having us get caught up in this never-ending cycle of competing with each other over scarce and, and very limited intentionally limited resources. You know, i got to tell you I've come to the realization and I don't know why it took me so long to know that I've been truly blessed with the one thing that most people of color just don't have. And that's the time to pursue my never-ending quest for knowledge about any and all things and my ability to figure out a way to make a living using what I have between my ears and not my back or any other part of my body that God has given me dominion over. I also have been blessed have been able to travel the world and meet people with different perspectives and cultures. You know, before I was 45, I was able to spend an extended amount of time on every continent on this planet, with the exception of Africa and Australia. Two places I intend to visit before I take the long dirt nap. I also have relatives who are of different races, including some Native Alaskans and a bunch of white folks. Now, I want you to know that we engage in the same kinds of debates and disagreements, that is to say, me and my relatives who are of a different white, race, we get into the same kind of debates and disagreements as I do with my black relatives. You know. We also need to know that I have been able to spend an extended amount of time in every state in the union, including Alaska and Hawaii. So today I want to give you a clue as to why our brothers and sisters, who are Pacific Island farmers, are just as worthy of receiving these USDA funds as my second and third cousins who were raised on farms in the Mississippi Delta. Now, the source material for today's talk is an article entitled How White Planners Usurped Hawaii's Last Queen. The bloodless but brutal coup that brought about Hawaii's monarchy brought it into uh, the Monarch monarchy and paved the way for U.S. statehood. And this article was written by Blake Blakemore, and was published in one of my favorite magazines that they send me at a reduced <laughs> subscription rate, uh, the National Geographic, and it was published recently on May 13, 2021. It starts in her Honolulu palace. Lili Koyaleli wavered over piece of paper that once signed would remove her standing as the country's queen. If she abdicated, six of her most ardent supporters would be released from prison where they had awaited execution for treason. The men had rallied a small army of fewer than 100 men to defend her position as the ruler of Hawaii, but after a few unsuccessful skirmishes, they had to stand down. For myself, I would have chosen death rather than sign it, she wrote in her autobiography. Think of my position, a stream of blood ready to flow unless I stayed up with my pen. With her signature on january 24 eighteen ninety five, generations of Hawaiian monarchy came to an end. The island Lily Kalloy once ruled, would soon be annexed to the United States at the behest of white settlers who had come to Hawaii and seen it as a cash cow. The legacy that was lost to a wealthy minority still resonates today. In 1893, United States President Grover Cleveland appointed James H. Blouch to investigate the coup in Hawaii. The Representative Committee of Delegates of the Hawaiian People petitioned them to, for the restoration of the moniker to the deposed queen. And he likely uh, would, had set about to do it. So, but after he conducted investigation, there were many whites who decided that Hawaii was a cash cow. It produced all kinds of sugar and it also laid uh, in the path uh, a foothold in the Pacific Island and that could act as a stepping stone to Asia. And it also had strategic military value being out in the middle of the ocean. As such, the coup, although discussed in informal talks about having it overturned, it never got anywhere because the white plantation owners saw it as being too valuable to give back to the Hawaiian people. So historically, before it had come under the rule of a minority, each island had been ruled by a a chief that was of the lineage of the folks on that particular island. So after the first European explorers arrived in 1778, contact with the outside world brought trade opportunities and advances like written languages. And many of the warriors, the, the tribal chieftains of the Hawaiian islands, took advantage of the weapons that the white settlers brought for them to use against some of the fellow islanders. And that ultimately led to the Hawaiian people coming together as a single monarchy. And so by 1795, after years of inter-island conflict, the Hawaiian native had formed one united nation. And they thought that would be best to keep them insulated from the takeover of foreign interests. Now, those foreign interests nonetheless decimated traditional Hawaiian society. These had disease that ravaged Native Hawaiians, and by 1840, their population had declined 84%. Now, this new constitutional monarchy, which mirrored the European concept of government also reshaped long-held social structures. Now, the islands were increasingly populated by Europeans, from missionaries to American entrepreneurs who began acquiring land, not necessarily the right way, but they acquired it nonetheless for sugar plantations. These sugar plantations imported initially Chinese workers And there was something called the Master Slave Act that treated these Chinese workers basically as slaves once they were lured to the island to work on these plantations. Now, again, these large plantations needed large numbers of workers and the owners began to import low-wage contract workers from all around the world, but especially from Asia. Soon, Hawaii was churning with massive amounts of sugar, and by 1874, it exported 25 million pounds of sugar to the mainland United States. Hawaii wasn't just an economic powerhouse. It, again, was seen as strategically important for the location between Asia and the United States. Uh, and it was a solid foothold in the Pacific. Now, sugar planters paid steep duties initially to import uh, sugar to the United States. So what was a way to get rid of having to pay those imports? Figure out a way to make Hawaii part of the United States then there would no longer be any trade tariffs and there would be a lot of free trade. Having this come into being, was one of the reasons there was a massive infusion of capital into Hawaii, with the goal of having it become an an annexed part of the United States, if not a total state. And with the bayonet constitution, where the queen was forced to sign over her title and her monarchy, that began the process that led to Hawaii becoming a state, although the citizens did not have the right to vote, kind of like the way things are going here in the United States. So we're going to leave it there for now, but I really want you to understand that just as there's problems in Hawaii, there were similar problems with the purchase of Alaska. And that's why black and brown people in this country need to respect the fact that People of color here in our country, of all races, we have a lot more in common than we realize, and it's our duty to learn about it and share that knowledge with each other. So I'm going to leave it there for now. But as always, in closing, I like to say here at selwyn's Law, we always want to stand on the right side of the law, including the laws dealing with getting our federal government to address some of the historic wrongs that have hamstrung farmers of color for generations so until we get together again please stay safe please get vaccinated and until we do keep our social distance mask up and wash our hands until next time take care